You can turn your Bible to John 16. We'll look at verses 4 through 15 this morning. That text is in the bulletin also. So I'm going to ask you to suspend your disbelief for a moment. Uh, believe it or not, there was this one time our kids did something wrong. I, yeah, it's like scandalous. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> and to make matters worse, this, this kid, if it, as if it weren't bad enough already, kid utterly refused to fess up to it. That one time. The nerve of some people. And here... Here we are, Jerry and I, good parents, uh, <clears throat> screaming at the top of our lungs, making every conceivable legal threat that we can make to extract a confession, and the kids just standing there, mouth shut like castle gates. Why do you think it's hard for kids to confess when they've done something wrong? Maybe because they're terrified of the consequences of admitting that they've done something wrong. In fact, all we had to do was say with just a little tenderness, don't worry, you're not going to be in trouble. We just need you to tell us what you've done so that we can talk about it. And then the kid sheepishly nodded, yes, I did it. And we moved right along from there, right? <clears throat> all the threats didn't work. A little tenderness worked. How does it feel to be convicted about your sins? Convicted of your sins against God? I mean, it feels bad, right? We, we feel threatened. Even though we're the ones that have done something wrong, we feel it is bad for that to be pointed out, for us to have to acknowledge that. We feel threatened by the slightest indictment against us. We resist the conviction of our sins against God. We resist it. We fortify ourselves against attacks when people would make implications or indictments about our sin. When the scriptures makes an indictment about our sin, we feel we've got to fortify ourselves. We've got to build up our walls, build up our defenses, make weapons, and train with them till we become proficient in using the weapons to do battle, to hold off the conviction of sins. And when the enemy comes, someone would convict us of our sins. We pull up the drawbridge, we drop the portcullis, we bar the gates, we man the battlements, we prepare for war, often content to hunker down silently behind the walls and wait out the enemy. Maybe the threat will pass over and I won't have to address this. I could just ignore it, the conviction of sins. But ready for violence if the threat of breach is imminent. I don't like being convicted of my sins. I don't like facing the truth that I've committed cosmic treason against the creator king of the whole universe, that I've been entirely unreasonable, even mad, even insane, trying to overthrow the foundations of reality, that I've rejected life itself. I don't want to know that about myself, that I've chosen death over life, that I've paradoxically repudiated my own nature because I've been against the God who is love and the God who created me in his own image for love. I don't want to know any of that. So why do you think it's hard for people to confess their sins? Maybe it's because we're terrified of the consequences of admitting what we've done wrong. 
In the gospel of Jesus Christ, God comes to us with incredible tenderness, not just a little tenderness. And he says, don't worry, you're not going to be in trouble when you confess. We just need to talk about what you've been doing so we can move forward. There's nothing more painful for sinners than the conviction of our sins because it strikes at the core of our desires, the things that we've wanted and the things we've built our lives around. It strikes at the core of our identity and our self-image. So there's nothing more painful, but God does it for our good. He does it for the good of our relationship with him. Conviction is actually one of the most important works of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's what... uh, the passage is about this morning, and the Spirit does this. The Spirit brings us to a conviction of our sins by keeping us fixed on the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how he does it. By keeping us fixed on what is good about Jesus, and he does it for our good, even if it's painful. Right? So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, as we come now to... Um, hear your word. We pray that you would grant your word authority over us through the work of your spirit, that you would cause us to humble ourselves underneath your word, to submit to what it has to say to us, even if it's not to our liking immediately, because you've spoken it to us and you are good and your purposes for it are good for our relationship with you. So we pray that you would enable us to hear. Give us ears to hear by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So last week, we talked about the church facing the world's treatment of Jesus himself through our spiritual association with him. In John's gospel, uh, the world, that that word, world, um, is is used to describe humanity in rebellion against God. It's, um, it's the, the world as it's arrayed itself against God and resists God and sins against God. 
The world doesn't like Jesus. Actually, Jesus used stronger language than that. He said that the world hates him. The world hates Jesus. And, you know, we've got like the T-shirt that says we're with him. right? And so the, the world hates us right? through our association. And Jesus says the world hates him because he is good. That's why the world hates him. It's because he is good, because his goodness shows up our badness. His goodness reveals that we're not good. We've done the things that are not good. And the world doesn't like to be confronted with thoughts of its badness. So it hates what is good. And that's what he said earlier in John's Gospel in chapter 3. He says of himself that he is the light of the world. He says that the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So it's painfully uncomfortable for us to be in the presence of Jesus when he is good, and that shows up our badness. So not only does the world try to avoid Jesus because he exposes the world's sin. The world attacks him in an attempt to remove the threat altogether. And so in this last conversation with his disciples here in the upper room, chapters 13 through 17-ish, in this last conversation before his death, Jesus is preparing the church to face the very same hostility that he himself has faced. Because he is good, and the world hates that, and because of our association with him, the world's going to hate us. And he's preparing us, he's preparing his disciples there, and he says in, in the first verse of our uh, passage this morning, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. So he hasn't been saying these very things since you know, the whole course of the three years that he was with his disciples. He's saying them now, now that his time has come. But uh, he didn't say them from the beginning because he's been there, right? And he's the lightning rod for the world's hostility against God. But when he's out of the picture, so to speak, after his death, after his resurrection, after he ascends bodily into heaven and goes to sit at his father's right hand and returns to the father in heaven and he's out of the picture then the church who lives in his name and bears witness to him and shines his light into the darkness and reminds the world of him and his goodness the church will be the target for the world's hostility and that just in and of itself really disturbed the disciples it had a chilling effect on them And they were worried. And Jesus knows that. And he says, But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So actually, when he says, None of you ask me now, uh, Where are you going? Actually, Peter asks the question with those very same words just a few chapters ago in chapter 13. In John's Gospel, he says, Lord, where are you going? So is this just a, an example of the Bible being, uh, you know, contradicting itself? No. Um, D.A. Carson explains this. He uses a, a pretty good illustration. It's pretty simple to explain the apparent contradiction 
when Peter asks, where are you going? And then just a little while later, Jesus says, none of you are asking me where I'm going. Um, This is the illustration. One Saturday morning, a child is expecting to go fishing with his father. But his father is called into work for an emergency meeting. And the child asks, Daddy, where are you going? Really isn't interested in the location of the meeting, right? Really, the child is asking something more like, why aren't you coming with me? Why aren't you staying with me? Why aren't we going fishing like you said we would? Um, And so the the disciples, they just think, Jesus, where are you going? Why aren't you going to stay here with us? It would be better for us if you just stayed, right? Just that life would be better if Jesus sticks around and they haven't really been able to process what Jesus has been telling them. He's been telling them very clearly what's about to happen. But Ronnie Whitaker says that the main point, as it now stands, as Jesus is talking, is the disciples focus on themselves rather than on Jesus. They're sad. They're scared. They can't understand why Jesus is leaving them because they're just sort of thinking about themselves. And I think it's, it's a fairly common sentiment, one that we can resonate with. We frequently believe life would be better if Jesus were just in the room. If Jesus were here and you could reach out and touch him and you could see him and walk with him and go through life hand in hand, so to speak, uh, it would be easier to be a Christian. It would be easier if, if he were still around, especially if he could still do stuff like provide free meals or uh, just fix things in general, make things better. Everything's better with Jesus and... Um, and he could still be that lightning rod so that people in the room who were angry at Jesus, they'd, they'd be angry at him and not really pay attention to us anymore. Because <clears throat> he can take it. But Jesus implies that his, uh, his disciples shouldn't be sorrowful, at least not only. Maybe they should be a little bit sorrowful that their friend is going away. But But that shouldn't be the main thing that characterizes their response to what he's been saying and what he's about to do. It shouldn't shouldn't ultimately be sorrowful for them to to think of the fact that he's going back to the Father. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Very simply, Jesus is saying it's better for him to go to heaven and then send the Spirit to us. That's what he's saying. The sending of the Spirit has been God's plan all along. The great thing about the Messiah, the the thing that the Messiah would do that everybody was waiting for for hundreds of years, the Messiah means uh, Christ. Christ is a translation of the word Messiah from Hebrew into Greek. And that, that word basically means anointed one the one who's anointed with God's spirit. So the great thing about this Messiah is that he would have God's spirit and he would anoint God's people with God's spirit. That's what everybody was looking forward to. The spirit of God coming upon us. All the prophets talk about it. Everything in the history of salvation is leading up to that. The Holy Spirit, you know, the more we get a clear picture of him through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the fullness of God. The Holy Spirit is the whole God. He's God himself. He's not a lesser God. He is God. And the purpose of God has been to give himself to his people fully. Not just to dwell with them, but to dwell in them. 
in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so, like I said, the prophets spoke about that a lot. Peter talks about that at Pentecost when the Spirit comes down, and Peter quotes Joel, saying, this is what the Scriptures were talking about. God coming to us and giving himself to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Everything's been leading up to this. Uh, Another example is the Old Testament reading that Rainey read from Ezekiel 36, where God said, I will put my spirit within you. And everything's going to change when I do that. I will put my spirit within you, God says. But Jesus says something curious, at least has us asking more questions when he talks about this. He says, if he doesn't go away, the helper won't come. If he doesn't go away, then the Spirit won't come. What does that mean? Why can't the Spirit come until Jesus first goes? Why can't we have both? There's some, like, metaphysical barrier to having both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Will the universe implode if they're both here at the same time? Why couldn't the Spirit come until Pentecost, until Jesus had gone back to the Father? It's because Jesus wanted what's best for us, actually. He wanted what's best for us. He knows what's best for us, and he wants it. The spirit of truth is what he calls the spirit several times and here in our passage. The spirit of truth is the spirit of the one who is the truth. Jesus has said, I'm the truth. So he's the spirit of Christ. He's Jesus' spirit. He's the spirit of the Lord of our salvation. He's the spirit of the whole truth. He's the spirit of the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything good about Jesus. He's the Holy Spirit of Jesus. So, hypothetically speaking, maybe Jesus could have given his disciples the spirit right there on the spot that very night. But then what would you have? You'd have the spirit of the sinless Jesus. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But it's not the best. Maybe the Spirit could have come upon them the day after Jesus' death, Holy Saturday. But then he'd only be the Spirit of the crucified Jesus. Probably better in some ways. That's good. Or or Jesus could have given the Spirit the morning he rose from the dead, when he first saw his disciples, but then he'd be only the Spirit of the risen Lord Jesus. That's better, even better but not quite the best. But if Jesus ascended into heaven to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and received the eternal kingdom and the eternal power and the eternal glory and received all things from his Father, received all authority in heaven and on earth from his Father, received the love of God, received the the Spirit of God without measure and then poured his Spirit into our hearts. That would be to our greatest advantage. That would be to our greatest advantage. He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the spirit of truth comes and he speaks and he declares and he reveals and he guides us into God's truth. 
Jesus has already claimed to be that truth. So the spirit of truth is Christ-centered. The spirit of truth makes Jesus known to us. He glorifies Jesus. He exalts Jesus. He reveals Jesus to us and, and locks us on to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. And the first way he does this is through the Scriptures. He does it through the Gospel that we're reading, uh, John's Gospel. He guided these first disciples, the apostles, in the writing of the Gospels and in the writing of the New Testament. He brought to memory what Jesus had told them, and he helped them to make sense of it. He helped them to write it down accurately and truly, so that now we have a record of the events of Jesus' life in the Gospels, and we also have the significance of Jesus' life, everything that it meant for him to live and die and rise from the dead and be glorified. The Spirit helped the disciples to write down the divine interpretation of Jesus in the New Testament, in the letters. So the purpose of the Spirit of truth working in this way is to glorify Jesus, Jesus who lived for us, but not only lived for us, who died for us, and who also rose from the dead for us, who ascended into heaven for us, and received all things from the Father for us. All that the Father has belongs to Jesus, including the Spirit. And that's not just as the divine Son of God, that's as the human, Jesus Christ. He's received every privilege of the divine Son of God as a human, and he gives it to you, and he declares it to you for your good, presumably. It's like the words of the prodigal father in Jesus' parable from Luke 15, where the father speaks to his son, and he says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And the father has said that, to Jesus when Jesus refer, returned to his Father in heaven. And, and the Jesus who has heard the Father say this, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The Jesus who has heard that gives us his own spirit. So that we may also hear the Father's words to Jesus and through our spiritual union with him, hear them as words spoken to us. Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. That's the significance of the ascended Jesus sending his spirit to us, anointing us with his spirit. That's why he had to go first to be able to send the spirit, the spirit of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the main effects of this good news this is all good news, <clears throat> and it's glorious good news. One of the main effects it has on people, <clears throat> one of the main works of the spirit of truth in our lives is the conviction of the truth about our sins. Jesus says in, in verse 8, when he comes, the spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So when Jesus was on the earth, when Jesus walked into a room, he polarized people. He had that effect on people. Some loved him, some hated him. And now he himself doesn't walk into the room, but the Spirit introduces him 
all over the world through the gospel ministry of the church, where Jesus will still have that same polarizing effect. Some people will respond with love. Some people will respond with hate through the gospel ministry of the church as we bear witness through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will keep Jesus in front of people, and that's a wonderful thing. Having Jesus kept in front of you by the Holy Spirit is only good, always. It's wonderful, but it's exactly what the world hates because it convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit confronts you with the ascended Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that you must come to grips with the nature of your rebellion against God. And he does this, he convicts you, he confronts you by confronting you with the goodness of the gospel, not with loud shouting and threats, with the goodness, the good news of Jesus Christ by declaring to you the truth that all the Father has belongs to Jesus, and he shares it freely. Admittedly, that seems like a pretty strange dynamic to us, that hearing good news about Jesus Christ um, would convict us of our sins and that that would be meant for our good. That's hard for us to, to get our minds around. It's hard for our hearts to respond well to that. But we see it very clearly at the end of the Old Testament reading, again, that uh, Rainey read, that the great promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, Beautiful, wonderful promises. When God says he will gather his people, he'll sprinkle clean water on them, he'll baptize them and, and, and uh, forgive them their sins, he'll save them from their false gods, he'll give them a new heart, take out the heart of stone and replace it with a tender heart toward God, a living heart of flesh. He'll put his spirit within them and he'll cause them to live by his word and he'll prosper them and he'll make them flourish in every conceivable way. And then he says, then you'll remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you'll loathe yourselves for your sins. It's his kindness that brings about that kind of response in us. It's his kindness that leads to repentance. It's his goodness that leads to contrition. It's his spirit that leads us to gospel conviction Conviction, Jesus says in verse 9 and following, conviction concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the, it's really hard to understand that section. All the commentators disagree about how to take these verses, but um, I think we get the general idea that the Christ-centered spirit shatters our illusions about ourselves. He convicts us of truth about ourselves that we'd rather not believe. He turns upside down all of our ideas about what it means to have a relationship with God by showing us Jesus in all his mercy and his grace. The Spirit shows us the life of the perfect human Jesus. He fixes our eyes on Jesus. He won't let us get away from Jesus. And he makes us to know we're not like Jesus. We need Jesus. We need his help. We need his forgiveness. When the Spirit convicts us of righteousness, it says there in verse 10, that word is probably being used sort of tongue-in-cheek, maybe the same 
kind of way that Isaiah uses it when he says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags in God's sight. We think, yeah, we're pretty righteous, but it's like garbage. It's garbage. That's not righteousness, right? It's self-righteousness. And that kind of righteousness is a joke. Worse than a joke. The Spirit shows us what true righteousness looks like in the life of Jesus Christ and what did self-righteous people do to Jesus. We encountered him, and then we were his enemies. He walked into the room, and self-righteous people wanted to kill him, and the Holy Spirit exposes that same pattern in all of our lives. His work makes self-righteous people, people who think that pretty much there's not much wrong with me, I'm basically okay, I don't sin too much, my relationship with God from my end is pretty good. He makes us able to say out loud, no, I actually hate God. I actually despise him. I'm resentful of him. That's a problem. I need true righteousness. I'm not righteous. My righteousness has been shown for what it is. It's a joke. It's a bad joke. I need true righteousness, and the only one who has that is in heaven. He's been vindicated in all of his righteousness because he's in heaven at God's right hand, where God has declared, you are my righteous son. When the Spirit convicts us of judgment, in verse 11, he shows us that Jesus is the only true judge, and Jesus has already condemned the devil as guilty. The devil who is the ruler of this world, he says. The ruler of this world. He's the representative of all those who belong to the world. He's the ringleader of those who have set themselves up against God as, I'll be the judge of God. The devil's the ruler of all people who say, I'll be the judge of God. At the first tree of judgment, Genesis 3, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of judgment, the devil pointed the finger of judgment at God, and he said, look, he's not good. And he got all of us to believe that and make that same judgment against God, to be judge of God and say, look, he's not good. Don't believe him. Don't obey him. You don't want to be with that guy. And at the cross, at the second, the last tree of judgment, that judgment is shown to be false. The devil points at God and says, judge him to be not good. The devil's judgment of Jesus, the world's judgment of Jesus has itself been judged. It's been condemned. At the cross, we see true judgment. Look at the cross. No, he is good. He is good. Keep your eyes on that cross where you put Jesus. Keep your eyes on the cross where Jesus went to bear the penalty for your sins. It might be hard to keep your eyes there, but you just keep on looking. You just keep on looking. God is throwing everything that he's got at you to convict you of your sins and to convince you of your need for his mercy. The fact that he will extend you mercy when you come and you ask for it. He's doing it by the spirit who always speaks, who always declares, who always reminds and guides you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the truth 
that it's okay to confess your sins. Look at everything God has done to take care of that problem. Don't worry. You're not going to be in trouble when you confess. We just need to talk about what you've been doing so that we can move forward from here. No matter who you are, no matter what your sin, that, that can be hard to believe, no matter what your sin. Jesus has already suffered the consequences in your place. And more than that, Jesus has already received all things from the Father in your place, on your behalf. And he's given you his spirit to convince you of that reality. You have a relationship with the living God. Your relationship with the living God is as perfect as Jesus' own relationship with the living God. And it'll last forever. And nothing in heaven or on earth could change that. It'll be so good for you to be able to talk about your sin with Jesus. It'll be so good for you to be able to do that. Because he's good, and that's what he wants. So you should believe that it is good and do it. Amen. Let's pray. I'll pray using Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Father, we pray that um, your spirit would work the gospel of Jesus Christ deeper into our hearts and convert our minds more fully so that we can believe this, so we can believe that even when your hand is heavy upon us, bringing us to the point of confession of our sins, it's for our good. Help us to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that everything about him is true of us in our union with him, even the fact that he, he lives forever at your right hand, even now having received all love, all honor, all power, all glory, the kingdom and all authority in heaven and earth from you. And he's done it in our place so that even if we confess our sins, even the darkest sins that we can make ourselves aware of, it won't threaten our relationship with you because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We pray that you would make us to know that we've been forgiven the sins that you convict us of. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.